1: coming up on the scott thompson home show podcast so do we take astrazeneca or not can the national advisory council on immunization and the federal health canada agency get on the same page please china sanctions a conservative mp and the ship is free it's all coming up Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML.
2: I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Hamilton is back in lockdown. That's like being sent to your room and they take away your device. Be hammer
1: strong. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. Yeah, that's a double negative. Go to your room and no device. What? What? Why don't you just say no air? <laughs> Why don't you just say, and but, never mind. Uh, good afternoon. It is uh, 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Willers can back at the station. Keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes as we engage in week number 54. Feel free to jump into the fun. Love to hear from you. Lots of ways to do that send us a note via the website Scott Thompson at 900 chml.com all right uh as i mentioned hamilton moving into the gray zone as of uh this morning here's what uh, rick zamprin had to say about where we are now
2: The strictest of the five levels means grocery stores are limited to 50% capacity, while other retailers, including big box stores, the LCBO, hardware stores and garden centers are restricted to 25%. Indoor dining is prohibited and personal care services such as hair and nail salons are closed until April 12th when new, less restrictive pandemic rules come into effect. Premier Doug Ford says we are at another important time in the pandemic.
3: Do not let your guard down. Follow the protocols. Keep your, your distance. Wear a mask always uh, wash your hands. It's, it's absolutely critical. I'm always concerned. You know, we should never, ever let our guard down.
2: Hamilton joins Toronto, Peel, Lambton, Sudbury and Thunder Bay in the gray lockdown zone, while Halton, Niagara and Brant remain in the red control category. Rick Samprin, Global News.
1: All right, let's bring in Dr. Zane Chagla, an infectious disease specialist with a specialist with St. Joe's Hospital and associate professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases and Department of Medicine, McMaster University, and with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well.
4: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Your thoughts on uh, where we are now with Hamilton obviously going back into a lockdown uh, today and a holiday weekend on the way.
4: Yeah, I mean... Yeah, it is really these, these two different planes, right? It's vaccinations and, and what's happening in the community, and unfortunately, the community transmission is is starting to rise, and uh, and this is not just a Hamilton issue. We're seeing rises in Halton, in Niagara, in Middlesex, London, in, in uh, you know jurisdictions around the GTA. Um, you know, as much as we think vaccines are going to get us out of this, and they will, it's, it's probably a little bit too early for them to have their effects. And, and realistically, we're heading down a road of increasing cases, increasing health utilization, increasing ICU and increasing deaths, not to the degree that we saw long term care in the second wave and the first wave, uh, but certainly some degree of, uh, of patients that that require significant hospitalization and unfortunately succumb to their illness.
1: Yeah, fortunately, with the third wave is, is we don't have to deal with the long-term care issues. Uh, you know, they've been vaccinated. We are hearing more vaccine on the way this week. Does, does this help us hold our own? Where does that put us in relation to who's winning this?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think what the problem is, is you know, someone who's vaccinated today is probably not going to see the effects of their vaccination for a couple of weeks. And so, you know, what's going to happen in one and two weeks we know people, even with one dose of vaccine, can break through. Yes, they may be much less complicated, thankfully. So we have some lag, and uh, and uh, even if we do get you know a significant amount of vaccines out in the next three to four weeks, you know they're going to have permanent solutions into us getting back to normal, or permanent reality to us getting to normal. But in the next three to four weeks, unfortunately, what's happening in our community is going to catch up to our healthcare systems, and then you know across both hospital systems, we're seeing. Uh, um, you know, pressures on both sides in terms of patient beds and that type of thing. So, you know, we are we the the vaccines will help and they'll get us out of this mess long term. But, you know, short term, we are going to see the pressures of this. And, um, you know, unfortunately, even then, we, we probably do have to start invoking some of our societal controls to get through it.
1: So, uh, obviously, uh, fifth day above 2,000-plus cases Mm -hmm. in Ontario. We're at uh, 2,094 today, and unfortunately, uh, 10 families have lost a member Mm -hmm. uh, in the last 24 hours. Um, The number of cases, as I'm looking back at my old notes here in front of me, we're heading back, uh, I can see, December 19th, we had 1,983 cases. So we're back up where we were. Uh, just prior to Christmas, how concerned are you of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, or, it, or is it, or is the number of cases not as relevant now in the third wave as it was in the second because we have those most vulnerable vaccinated?
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I think you you do 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 draw one degree where we saw a lot of case growth in the long term care sector in uh, in the second wave, and some of that is not being displayed here, so maybe it's twenty percent less of what the second wave looked like at this point there we know cases in long-term care really resulted in hospitalizations and deaths way more than any other population but you know even in that context there are vulnerable people getting COVID 19 in that 2000 cohort and if five percent of them per day need to be hospitalized and one percent of them need an icu bed you know, we're still talking about demands that are going up, not down. Right? So, five percent of two thousand, um, you know, a hundred individuals needing a hospital bed; one percent of two thousand, twenty individuals needing an ICU bed. If we did that for two weeks, we would fill up our hospitals and ICUs. So. You know, we are still not in a safe place right now. Again, the vaccines will probably get us to that safe place in a month or two when the supplies get out, more people get vaccinated, vulnerable people get vaccinated. But for the next month or two, this case growth is not sustainable and, again, is going to lead to healthcare care being um, compromised for both COVID patients but for non-COVID patients when we have to scale back services to deal with the burden of COVID cases
1: uh as you alluded to uh these waves have all been different in some way although uh similar in many uh, the third wave, obviously, uh, elderly a lot vaccinated, especially in long-term care. Uh, we're seeing more younger, uh, younger uh, mm-hmm. demographics getting it now. What 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 does that say? And 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 what's your thoughts of it now starting to? And it's not like it's just starting to affect those people. Mm-hmm. It's just now we're not seeing the 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 older generations uh, jump the numbers up. So how is the younger generation getting it going to affect the third wave?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, hospitalization and healthcare utilization is probably going to be driven by people under the age of 70, and, you know, particularly 50 to 70 still being a high-risk group. We are seeing young people end up in hospitals. Again, that may not all be the fact that the variants do cause a little bit more hospitalization and death, although they seem to, but... You know, just the absolute numbers in young people are are a bit higher than they've ever been during this pandemic. And so eventually, you know, that 0.1% that end up in ICU for a younger population, if you have enough young people infected, there's enough of those that will end up in hospital just by the numbers in that sense. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think you see a different demographic here. You are starting to see some individuals, not a lot, but some individuals without any major medical issues end up in hospital and fairly ill. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, I mean, you know, these aren't necessarily just average individuals. These are often people that are uh, scarcely housed. These are people from jails. These are people that are working in essential workplaces where, you know, we've seen transmission occurring. Uh, and, uh, and unfortunately, again, they're seeing the brunt of this more and more. These places are much more vulnerable in this wave, and, and we've seen jail shelters and workplaces becoming much more of an issue in this wave.
1: Uh, as uh, as we slowly start to get more and more uh vaccination in i'm actually looking at uh video footage of uh, of a, a drive-through clinic they're going to open up at canada's wonderland mm-hmm. and a- as we get more and more we're hearing that there are spots opening up and it leads you to believe people in especially when they dropped it down to the 60 for the astrazeneca mm-hmm. the people aren't really eager to jump in line and grab this vaccination your thoughts about the hesitancy with getting with those under 60 or sorry, just over 60 and the AstraZeneca vaccine.
4: Yeah, I mean, there's hesitancy across all groups. I mean, there was hesitancy in the healthcare worker and long term care sector. And again, those are people that are at the highest risk of acquiring COVID-19, but still have some fears and, and some insecurity about the vaccine. There's hesitancy amongst 80-year-olds. I mean, there are slots that went open to people that were 80. We haven't gotten to all the 80-year-olds. Some of it is hesitancy. Some of it is access. But we're clearly not being able to get people there. And again, as as people's risks for COVID-19 complications start going down, there's more hesitancy introduced there because people think they can deal with it by themselves. They're not as worried about it. They're more worried about the vaccines. You know, AstraZeneca came out in Canada and, you know, weekly we had this this uh, discussions around um, blood clots and, and many of these other issues that we're seeing around in Europe. And, and reasonably, we do need to watch for them. There's now guidance documents around that. But yeah, I mean, I, I think people were a little bit hesitant there. People didn't want to necessarily get AstraZeneca, they wanted to weed it out. There were some issues about efficacy, which I think have now been hammered down to say it's closer to 80% than anything else. Uh, there was some issues with age, and again, that's been hammered out in big U.S. trials suggesting actually age is not a predictor of this vaccine failing. It may perform even better in older individuals. And so, you know, I, I think there were definitely a lot of issues with kind that people were thinking, well, I'm just going to wait down the list a little longer and a little longer and a little longer. The, the worry, obviously, is that waiting, and especially a 60-year-old who is not in queue for another three or four weeks... um you know, getting COVID-19, ending up in a hospital, ending up in a ventilator when they could have done something to prevent that. Again, this is not the last vaccine people are going to get. This is just the first one to prevent people from ending up in the hospital, prevent people from dying, minimize what's going on in our communities, and move on so that we can get our lives together and, and go back to the way we were. Um, this is just the vaccine to get us there. It's not the vaccine to get this disease completely under control, which is going to be in the future.
1: Uh, obviously, as we heard in the earlier report, uh, Hamilton is in the lockdown, uh, Gray, uh, Toronto's not. Of course, in the middle is Halton, out the other side, Niagara in red and such. How concerned are you with uh, region skippers? Are, 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 are people still doing that?
4: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. Right? I mean, all of us not only live in one region and go to another for a particular reasons, you know, retail uses, but we also live in one region and work in another, right? And so, Mm. you know, that area between Niagara, Hamilton, Burlington, Oakville is so interconnected between workers, between residents, between shopping, between retail, between families, between schools, Uh, and and yeah, I mean... you know, the regional plan is is great, but again, it, it has some failures in the sense that you can go 10 minutes one way or 10 minutes another, where your behavior changes, you know, if you live on this side of, of the road versus that side of the road. And realistically, again, if we are talking about a scenario where things are going to get a bit more restricted, where things need a bit more control for the healthcare system to deal We can't really be thinking about these arbitrary lines between Niagara, Hamilton and Halton and Brant. We probably have to think about them as the same regions for the sake of making sure that all of them are protected at once rather than necessarily one area of protection. It does mean more sacrifices though for people that have already sacrificed so much. And and again, you know, it's tough, but at the same time, this virus doesn't decide, you know, care what side of, you know, Hamilton or Halton uh, you're on. It really just, you know, flows through people in, into environments where it can infect others.
1: We talked, uh, <laughs> we've talked for the last year about uh, various holidays and, and long weekends and such. And and before each one, I remember this, uh, you know, before uh, Christmas and such, uh, many were concerned about uh, the uptick two weeks later once uh we start seeing the results of people who perhaps didn't abide by protocol uh way back when uh, there was lots of confusion about what the protocol is i don't think anybody can be confused about what the protocol is now we've been living it for a year so how concerned are you about coming into the long weekend and advice for us that are heading into that long weekend
4: yeah i mean again the one advantage of this long weekend as compared to you know thanksgiving and uh, is the weather is better, right? And so, you know, gathering is probably not in our cards right now, but if you're going to do it, do it outside. Do it outside. The ventilation is good. You know, the weather is good. It gives people the mental health relief. But avoid the indoor meal. Avoid the indoor gathering. Avoid the indoor exchange of gifts. Avoid, you know, some of those high-risk environments where things can spread more, Again, focus on the outdoors, you know, short meetups, that type of thing. Again, you know, there is a way to do it safely. There is a way for people to interact, Um, you know, distance when you're doing that outdoor gathering, mask when the distancing is quite difficult. But this is not the time to be doing an indoor event. And I think that's what drove a lot of our case growth through the Christmas uh, season. But, again, we have the benefit of having the outdoors right now, and so we really do need to take advantage of it. And the messaging needs to come out about that too.
1: And hopefully this is the last Easter we'll have to do that. But, you know, you know, I, we may have said that last year. <laughs> uh, Dr. Zane Chaglis has been with us, infectious disease specialist with St. Joe's Hospital and, of course, associate professor in the Department of Disease and Medicine, McMaster University. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You too. All the best. Good news, more vaccine coming in this week.
0: Around 3.3 million doses are expected to flood into Canada this week. That's including 1.2 million of the Pfizer and BioNTech shots. Moderna is to make good on its promised delivery of 600,000 doses, which is about a week later than expected due to a backlog in quality assurance testing. And we're also expecting around 1.5 million doses of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine from the United States, which will mark the first shipment to have come from south of the border. To date, more than 5 million Canadians, or about 11% of the population, has received one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine. Brianna Carnegie, Global News.
1: Bob's on the line and wants to tell us about his experience. Bob, how you doing? Uh,
5: I'm uh, doing pretty good, but I'm sort of disappointed in the process because... Uh, I don't know if I got a valid complaint or not. Maybe you could tell me and your, maybe your guests could tell me. But anyway, make a long story short, I'm uh, in my 70th year and my wife is in her 69th year. I was able to book a, a test for Wednesday, or I mean a vaccine, vaccination for Wednesday. But they won't take my wife because she's not old enough. But we've been together yeah. for 50 years.
1: No, I, I totally get what you're saying. It's, uh, yeah, absolutely. It, it, well, here's my explanation and we'll, uh, we'll ask the doctor when, when we get him on. Um, I think this is still an issue about supply, and what they have to do is they have to set up, you know, 60 to 65, 65 to 70, whatever, 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 and, you know, you guys are caught right between uh a rock and a hard place, so to speak. If there was enough supply, and, and we didn't even have to do this, I'm sure when you went in to get yours, they would give the whole household uh one as well, because that just simply makes sense. But yeah, what you're pointing to is just, you know, where do they draw the line they've got to draw the line somewhere because there has to be some sort of organization simply because there's well. more people looking for it than there is supply so again it's a fine line but thanks for the call be well good luck uh and we'll certainly ask uh, dr Ahmad khalid that health policy expert he is with us now doctor thanks for the time hope you're well
6: same to you, Scott. Thanks for having me. Thanks for the great uh,
1: obvious, obvious question and a great one. I mean, you know, I can think of my in-laws who are in the same situation, perhaps not as close in age, but obviously these two a year apart, one on one side of the threshold, one on the other. Uh, you, you would think in any sort of situation that is normal, they would just do them both at once. But how would you answer uh, Bob's question?
6: I mean, what you've answered is correct, Scott. I mean, part, majority of the reason why this is happening is because of supply, but also because of the evidence. We know that people above the age of 70 are more likely to develop severe uh, consequences because of the virus and that can lead to ICU admission. While the younger the person is the more likely based on the evidence so far, that they'll have better outcomes and hence why we started the vaccination with long-term care home centers, 80 and above 70 and above and and so forth. So sorry, the idea here is that to target based on the uh, evidence that we have and supply and you're absolutely correct. If we had ample amount of vaccine, i don't think there would have been any issue for anybody to get vaccinated when they present with somebody else within that age group but right now we know that the supply is limited and therefore there has to be some strict criteria and that criteria was developed based on the demographic of the disease and how it actually manifests itself in different age groups and so uh, our our audience member that asked the question you know him getting the vaccine while his wife is waiting well that's because we're trying to make sure that god forbid if he does get the virus he doesn't end up in a severe case of the COVID-19 that might, uh, unfortunately, to his death. And that doesn't seem to be the same case for younger age demographic like his wife. They seem to be doing a little bit better. Uh, that's on average, of course, and the difference between one person to another
1: yeah and and you know uh, a valid question, but as you said, when you when you've got to come up with some sort of system and get people in and get people out efficiently and, and the most vulnerable first, uh, it is what it is. Uh, talk to us about these numbers. It's interesting, Doctor. I was looking back on some past notes while we were waiting to go on here. Uh, and and we've talked about this before. Uh, is the case count a valid, uh representation of where we are because it seems it's it means something different in every single wave we've been in Uh, today we're looking at 2094 uh, cases Uh, unfortunately uh, 10 families have lost a a loved one uh, in the last 24 hours so that's where we're sitting today Uh, as i look back on some of the other numbers back to december 15th we're at 2275 so roughly the same area However, 28 had passed away. And then we looked at January where the numbers were up to uh, 3,119 with 84 uh, passing away. So we're certainly starting to see those numbers climb in this third wave. However, thank goodness we're not seeing the death rate stay the same. Do you want to add anything to this? And can we compare these numbers or is it apples to oranges?
6: Well, I think that all those numbers, what they do is they're pieces of information. So, you know, when, I always say that the, the example to that is like buying a car. When you're trying to buy a car, you don't just take the listing price of the agency, right? You think about all the numbers are in the market. How much does it value? How much will it cost to fix it up if there's a problem with it? Case numbers, death numbers, hospitalization numbers, all they're doing is a performance measure on how well our health system is responding to the current crisis. And now the higher the case number, the more concern that there is that, you know, maybe we need to alter or shift our intervention. So, and you're right. I mean, it's very hard to compare case numbers from one province to another, for example, because different context matters, right? Like, I mean, it's even hard to compare downtown Toronto core to Hamilton and every region different. But what all those numbers do is that they present an image or an insight into what we're doing in, in, in the case of the pandemic. I mean, when you think about like zero case numbers, like New Zealand or parts of like Hong Kong, for example, what is, how does that difference from us? Well, that says that their intervention is really working while ours is not as well. Uh, the degree to which they work, the interventions that we have in place with the case numbers, I think that's relative to what you're talking about here. Are you talking about health systems burdening and how well our health system is able to respond to crisis? Then you need to shift your focus to look at death rates and hospitalization rates and not so much on case numbers. But if you're looking at overall community spread, then yes, case numbers then plays a the big factor.
1: So how are how is the healthcare system now? How are our hospitals and ICUs? We remember that was such a concern during the first and second wave. How are we faring so far?
6: It's still maintaining to be a concern only because of the variants. I mean, the variants are really you know putting a lot of stress on health systems right now. And by stress, I mean that. You know, the, the, the health systems overall in Ontario are reporting that they're anticipating, or in some cases, in some hospitals, they have to reshift priorities about how they're going to triage patients because they're seeing a higher number of cases. Again, that's specific to specific regions and hospitals, so we can't generalize it throughout the province. But the overall message here is that there is concern. The health system is an alert. The variants are concerning uh, and that we need to be sort of vigilant to what's happening. But the hope now is that with the the aggressive vaccination plan, with more doses scheduled to come into Canada and hopefully a faster rollout. I mean, the more doses we get of the vaccine, the idea here is that, you know, we get to a point where like our audience member can go in with his wife, who's a little bit younger than him, and both get vaccinated. It just Mm tells us that. more people will be getting vaccinated in the near future. And the goal here is to get as many people vaccinated as possible.
1: Uh, World Health Organization report is out uh, tomorrow, starting to get some preliminary information coming out about this. Anything new here for you?
6: I read the report. I mean, the report hasn't been officially released till tomorrow. I will tell you that people are going to have, this is what I suspect is going to happen. People are going to be very confused about the findings of this report. Uh, Quite frankly, they're all over the place. Uh, there's no conclusive evidence. So that just to, uh, to remind that, that our audience is that the WHO, the World Health Organization, put together an exploratory committee, and their job was to go to China and to figure out how did this virus start as one of the missions of this. They, were, they had many different objectives. And so far from what we can see from the report's early findings is that there is no conclusive evidence. And to be fair, that kind of conclusive evidence usually takes like tens of years I mean I'll give you an example with Ebola virus that many of our audience members remember we're still 40 years in trying to figure out where how did Ebola really start they suspected the bats which is the initial theory we had and we reported on your show beginning of last year uh, is still valid that it, it was transmitted through a bat however there's still a missing link and missing information part of that is the Chinese government willingness to actually disclose that information it is not happening uh, and they weren't as cooperative as they WHO expected it to be. But, you know, I think what you're going to hear t- tomorrow when the report is released is that further studies need to be done to really get to the bottom of this.
1: Uh, are you concerned that uh, China had too much influence over this? Because, as you mentioned, there were things left out, there were things that were focused on.
6: Uh, I'm not just concerned about China. I'm actually concerned about a number of countries that might have made an influence in the findings. However, I do trust the scientific committee behind the report. How the report gets communicated is a different story. Every country now might use, I mean, this is politics and and politics. Uh, we'll use different ways to advocate for the findings. I and mean, you can see China already actually has released a statement saying, you know, we're not necessarily in support of the conclusions. And we don't believe that the, at some point in the report, there are talks about labs. I mean, if you remember, Donald Trump has made yeah. comments that the virus actually came out of labs in China. And the report says there is no evidence to support that. And so China is using that as a way to, you know, advocate that it didn't come from our country. It would be politically a disastrous thing if this report comes out and says, you know, China is at fault from this. And so I think that the scientific committee is trying to do as much as they can to stick to evidence.
1: Are you convinced we will ever know how this all started? I remember talking to one epidemiologist a while ago, and they know exactly what happened with, with SARS. Uh, so, do you think we will find that, um, that sort of information, that, that detail?
6: Now, whether we know about it, or whether we disclose it, it's two different things. Scott. Right, right. <laughs> I yeah, think, good point. I think the answer will come, uh, but whether we, the public, will come to be available of that knowledge, is a different story, Um, and time will tell. I mean, I do think that the world is becoming more transparent. That's just by virtue of the public demanding that transparency and accountability. And, you know, this might surprise us. A year from now, we might have a leak of the actual reason behind it or very close to it. It, You know, it's very hard to tell, but I'll tell you that social media and, and the influence of the public has played a big factor in how much things are actually being disclosed anymore.
1: Yeah, good point. It's going to be pretty hard to keep this a secret. Uh, obviously, Hamilton into a lockdown, as is Toronto. Uh, points are in red zones in between. Do we st- are we still concerned about region skippers? Uh, are people still going from one region to another to purchase services or goods or, or what have you? Or are we just so used to this now?
6: According to the reports, yes. I mean, that that's still a continuous thing. And I don't think that's going to stop. So I'll be very frank with you. I, I suspect that it will continue to be the case. People you know, understand that the pandemic is happening, but it's for some people, this is not to generalize, they they are going across people who live in downtown core Toronto are going to Hamilton and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, other regions are doing the same. We are still seeing people who are not sticking to their own region and we will continue to see that. And so the lockdown measures in and out of different colour zones will continue to be the case until we have, you know, enough herd immunity or that the vaccine is being distributed across the province period.
1: We certainly haven't heard anything more in the negative light around AstraZeneca in a while. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. We're leading
2: off with breaking news here on 900 CHML, Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization, now recommending AstraZeneca's COVID-19 vaccine not be administered to people under the age of 55. The committee cited concerns over reports of blood clots as its reason for issuing the new guidance. It recommends those over 55 can still receive the AstraZeneca shot. Health Canada says it has become aware that additional cases of blood clots and low blood platelets have occurred in people who have received the AstraZeneca vaccine. It adds no cases of these events have been reported in Canada. Rick Samperin, Global News.
1: Oh my. All right. We'll talk about this again before the hour is out. We're com-
0: this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Coming back.
1: You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, even this is getting confusing for me. I cannot believe what just happened and what we all kind of witnessed live. So initially, they're telling us not to use it in those over 65. Now they're reporting, our at NACI, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, now they're saying, we don't recommend it on anybody under 55. Under and then if you go farther down, the uh, PEI suspending the use of this product in people aged 18 to 29 who are working directly with the public, leaving me to ask the question, who the hell gets this vaccine? Who is this for? Is this for old people? Is it for young people? Is it for middle-aged people? Because it looks to me you pretty much checked off with an X. None of them. Nobody can get this. And this is not the manufacturer. These are our government, federal government agencies. In Ottawa, the National Advisory Committee on Immunization and Health Canada once again are on two different pages. So now we've gone to a problem of not having enough vaccine to finally, when it gets in, nobody wants it. How can you blame people? How can you possibly blame people for being confused? And it's not the province's fault. It's not the municipality's fault. It's the freaking federal government who has twice issued two different recommendations from two different government bodies. As a Canadian, as the Prime Minister, as any Premiers, who are we supposed to listen to? Are we supposed to listen to Health Canada? Or are we supposed to listen to Canada's National Advisory Committee on Immunization? Who the heck are we supposed to listen to? Mr. Prime Minister? Come on. Come on. We need vaccine. And you've got two different government agencies recommending two different things. Get your act together, Mr. Trudeau. And now I have no idea. I've been trying to go through this stuff and weigh in for you and give you my honest opinion. I have no idea anymore. I have no idea anymore what I'm supposed to do with this. I have no idea if you were to ask me who gets the AstraZeneca, I'd go. I don't know. Because you know what? I'm a guy in my mid-50s. I don't fall right in the 55 thing. But I ain't getting it. Because I'm a year or two out of that threshold. So well, on my birthday, I'm fine? Like, come on. And meanwhile, I've been telling everybody to get this. Yeah, yeah, you got to get it. You got to get it. got to do something. And here we are. And it's like, I don't know. What do I do now? What does a person in their 50s do now? Sorry, I'm hosting the show, aren't I? All right, let's bring in Thomas uh, Kate from uh, Ryerson University. He is with us now. Thomas, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
3: Uh, yes, thanks, Scott. Uh, great, great to be with you again. And, uh, yeah, I, I hear your frustration.
1: Honestly, Thomas, I don't know whether to take this or not, because it was said over 65 shouldn't. Now they're saying under 55 shouldn't. And even eighteen to twenty nine or thirty nine or twenty nine—I can't remember now—it changes so much. So who gets AstraZeneca? Who is not? Who is left?
3: <laughs> well, yeah. So so basically, the, the, as far as I can tell, uh, you know, it, it's it is a sort of a bit of a roller coaster. But uh, basically, up until you know recently, they said uh, anyone uh, over eighteen and up to sixty five, and then. More recently, they said, "Okay, 65 plus is fine as well," because and that the reason why they they were cautious about 65 plus was because when when it was uh, when this vaccine was going through its uh, you know trial phases, they didn't have very many people in that age category, so they weren't sure what the what the results would be. So so once it was then rolled out to a lot of you know a lot of people around the world, they got a lot of data, and so they said, "Yeah, you know, okay, safe for safe for." Say for over 65. So, so that means you know, up until today, uh, you know, it's it's available, it's good to go for everyone. Whereas now there's sort of there's some you know uh, news reports saying they're thinking about putting the brakes on for people under 55. And so, so it means that anyone over 55 is 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 fine. So, but, you know, as you said in your intro, there, you know, is you know, if you're 54 and a half what what does that mean or if you're fifty five and a half you know the i think the reality is these you know these age age uh, age ranges aren't you know you know cut and dried they're they're you know they're they they are you know it's not sort of safe unsafe um uh, i think you know from what i've been reading uh and the you know the reports that are coming out and the the journal articles and whatever from from europe the uh why they're sort of starting to sort of there's some questions about uh, the AstraZeneca uh, virus uh, vaccine sorry and the uh, and its uh, and blood clotting is that uh, of the people who have uh, received the uh, received AstraZeneca and have had blood clotting prime it's basically been in people who are in the you know, younger age groups. So, so I think that's what sort of seems to be driving this and so so overall, the message is you know uh you know sixty yeah you know, sixty plus you you're still good to go for this one but uh but under that under that age group you know really I think that they might be sort of saying let's use one of the other three and and I think that's a good thing of you know having options is that uh you know as information comes in, then they can sort of tweak the uh tweak the recommendations but it but it definitely does uh you know sort of mean that the the messaging uh can get a bit tricky uh
1: earlier on uh when there was concerns over the astrazeneca and those over 65 as you said it was lack of of data from testing they weren't sure how effective it was it wasn't a safety issue but now this pause for those under 55 55 and under that is a safety issue which changes the whole
3: discussion yeah, it, it definitely changes the discussion because of because of uh, you know this being a decision based on on safety. Uh, you know, one of the things you know we you know this is still sort of uh, you know sort of rumors of this is going to happen, so we haven't actually seen what the uh, actual decision is. But I suppose one of the way one of the things I'd sort of you know sort of describe this through is by saying, well, okay, if if this was you know the, the they're talking about this as being a safety issue because of blood clotting and so then if you so then the question would be okay if if you in the general community how many people would have blood clots for, you know in the general community uh, and then the other aspect is how many people who get get covid get blood clots and and what we what you find is that like uh, you know the there's a lot more, lot more people in the community for the number of, of uh, who would actually, who have blood clots versus the number that have had blood clots because of the AstraZeneca uh, uh, vaccine. And so, so that's one thing is, as in, you know, just sort of the general community rate is much higher than what is in yeah. the people getting AstraZeneca vaccine. The flip side is that uh, one of the uh, symptoms and outcomes of getting COVID is blood clotting and, uh, It's, you know, a much substantially higher number of people who are cases who get blood clots if they get COVID versus, you know, uh, and it's, you know, it's quite, quite substantially higher. So, so from if, if you think of it that way, you're Mm. still talking uh, a very low risk, Uh, but obviously that they must be, there must be something triggering some caution there because, you know, given the numbers, you know, what I was reading, you know, they're talking, something like, you know, 40 cases in 17 million, uh, you know, vaccines. I'm going to have to cut
1: you off there, Thomas. We're we're just simply out of time. Thomas Tencake with us from Ryerson University. Thank you, Thomas.
2: Federal immunization experts have changed their recommendations for the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Shelley Deeks, vice chair of the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, made the announcement in a virtual news conference this afternoon.
1: AstraZeneca
6: COVID-19 vaccine should not be used in adults under 55 years of age at this time, while the safety signal of vaccine-induced prothrombotic immune thrombocytopenia, or VIPIT, following vaccination of AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine is investigated further.
2: Health Canada is demanding AstraZeneca do a detailed study on the risks and benefits of its vaccine across multiple age groups after getting more reports that patients in Europe developed blood clots following vaccination. Ontario is among a number of provinces hitting pause on AstraZeneca's vaccine for those under the age of 55. Rick Samprin, Global News.
1: All right. Here is today's Daily Commentary. As we start week number 54 of the Scott Thompson Home Show, we all know over the past year things have grown. But because our life is anything but a life, we don't notice. Until you look at it through a pre-COVID-19 lens. Or a mirror. For example, your hair. Most are certainly not maintaining their coif the way they once were, especially guys. And who cares because everyone is enjoying the irresponsibility of hedge hair. Not to mention the other orifices in your body, such as nose and ear hair. And let's not forget about that monobrow you've been cultivating over the last year. Okay, maybe that's the guys too. No sense in getting into weight, because that would only spoil your Monday. And this is supposed to be lighthearted. I noticed this weekend another thing that has grown is my trees in the backyard. When did that happen? Have I spent so much time staring at them the past year I haven't even noticed they've grown? It's like waking up and noting your kids are taller. So it looks like it's more than just me that needs a good buzzing around here. Where's my chainsaw? I'm Scott Thompson. Let's bring in Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta. Uh, China has sanctioned conservative MP Michael Chong. And also Chinese diplomats cranking up the rhetoric, insulting uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, calling him a boy. Uh, let's bring in Gordon Holden now from the University of Alberta. Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
7: I am well, and, uh, I, and I appreciate your impatience with all the mixed messaging. But I, I I stick to China. I'm bewildered by all the other complications of coronavirus.
1: <laughs> I hear you Cole. I hear you Gordon. I, I wish I could stick to one or the other. Uh anyway, um so uh we have certainly seen this relationship the rhetoric ramp up uh for obvious reasons. Uh we uh, there's various countries that put sanctions against uh China. Now we're seeing them do the same thing uh sanctioning conservative MP Michael Chong. What does this mean for him? What is that what does it mean?
7: I think it's very little practical effect for him in the direct sense. I don't think he's about to, to go to China or open a Chinese bank account. Um, um, Hong Kong might have been a slightly different story. That's also closed to him now. But I think the practical effect is very small. But I think the political effect is more significant. I think he was quoted, I hope this is accurate, saying, uh, I will wear it as a badge of honor.
1: Words, yeah. <laughs> that was my next question. He seems to be celebrating this.
7: I don't think it'll hurt him all. It'll probably burnish his credentials in the eyes of many. But, um, and I get that. The whole uh, business of sanctions, counter-sanctions, um, it becomes a bit dizzying. And after a while, and I found this when I was a diplomat, when you get into rounds of, of um, actions and counter-actions, after a while you can almost begin to lose track of what was the original, original concern. And China now is not about to sit still. It has the means to hit back, and it's clear they will hit back.
1: Um, obviously, this is going to be tit for tat. And uh, now the rhetoric has even sort of hit a new low. Uh, boy, your greatest achievement is to have ruined the f- uh, friendly relationships, be- uh, the relation between Canada, or sorry, China and Canada, and have turned Canada into a running dog of the U.S. They're calling the prime minister a boy. Your thoughts?
7: Uh, well, again, I think actually this individual who put out this tweet who is the Chinese cultural general in Rio de Janeiro, I believe, probably went a bit too far in the eyes of his government because immediately thereafter. When asked, the Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson, when asked about that, said, well, he was tweeting in his on a private account. I don't actually think for PRC diplomats it's truly a private account. For one thing, you can't have a Twitter account uh, other than outside of China or if you're in the government itself. Uh, I think they probably realized this went too far because, as you know, our prime minister has been criticized for being too soft on China. So it's somewhat ironic. Now the Chinese themselves are saying that he is too hard. I mean, he's a running dog, which is a a nasty aspersion in the in in within the Chinese language. Doesn't have quite the I'm fond of dogs. Uh, I've got three of them lying around me here. I, uh, you know, <laughs> running dog doesn't have the same impact. But but for in Chinese, it's a long-standing nasty comment. And uh, I I think he went too far. And I I actually don't like the idea of, of diplomats or even government officials having accounts where they make comments on, on policy. I, I feel the same way in Canada. They do it in China VG, that way. You know, where is this coming from? This person has inside knowledge. Does this have official view or not an official view? And, and maybe I'm old school, but I don't even like it when Canadian officials use a so-called private account to make political comments. I think that's one thing. If you're a public servant, if you're a politician, fine. But if you're a public servant, I'd say stay away from that. China is a bit of a special case because they have very limited access to these means. But I think it was a mistake on their part because at some point, sooner or later, um, whoever is the prime minister will have to re-engage with China. And if you have that background of direct personal insults, it just makes it more difficult. bit like if you have a dispute with your neighbor over a fence line, calling them names won't really help in the long mm-hmm. run
1: um certainly lots of reports about anti-asian sentiment in uh various areas uh we're certain, certainly hearing that coming up more on the news uh how do we balance this by keeping the pressure on the chinese communist party and what china has to become as opposed to taking it out on chinese canadians um and and do we do we need more education here do we need more messaging between both uh both sides here
7: well, I think more messaging and better education is always the case. I think those who have been critical of Chinese policies, those pursued by the Communist Party of China or even the government of China, say in Xinjiang and Hong Kong, aren't necessarily, or by any means, aiming at individual Chinese people, people of Chinese origin here in Canada, or Canadians just like you and me. But if the rhetoric gets carried away, I think that sometimes the effect is, is almost the same. People who hear these criticisms then think it's fair game to take it out on on their fellow Canadians who happen to be Asian. And it's not even just Chinese. Um, Japanese, who are yeah. generally not well, uh, don't have close relations with the Chinese side, are, are also victims, as are Korean, Canadians, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's, it's really a nasty thing. And there are so many different groups that form this country. I think we really have to be careful about uh, things we don't like abroad, bringing them home into our neighborhood
1: uh are is is the united front taking advantage of these uh demonstrations these protests and we remember the huawei cfo they had supporters planted supporters at the very beginning of all of this uh is the united front involved in this in any way
7: i haven't seen proof of it but my general experience has been and this again is an, yet another complication that those who um, let's say, are part of either voluntarily or actually conscripted in the United front, which is basically a group of people of Canadian Chinese of Chinese origin overseas who support their government, the Chinese government and, and uh, their, their former motherland or motherland, they will use those connections to try and boost China's standing. That can happen. And even it could be used by those groups to try really rally solidarity and then to push certain policies. I haven't seen evidence of that yet, but if the same problem comes up, um, or not not to assume that people are of Chinese origin, and even if they have views which are more sympathetic to China than you would have, you shouldn't assume that some are working for a foreign power. The kind of fifth column thing argument is, uh, I'd say leave that to thesis and the government, and um, just treat your fellow Canadians well, and certainly engaging in violence, which has occurred against uh, Asian Canadians, is despicable and should be pursued by the police, as it has been in some cases.
1: Do we need to have a broader discussion than stop bullying?
7: I think so. I think so. Because,
1: because it you know, seems that either side doesn't understand the other. Um, you know, just in the conversations that I've had on this topic uh, on the air, it's, there's two totally different worlds here.
7: There are two, two totally different worlds. I know in some places like Vancouver, where the number of Canadians of Chinese origin is very high, sometimes there are people who resent that uh, will use criticism of China as a as a bit of a weapon yeah. against uh, their own neighborhood. So you're right. Uh, you're entirely right. More conversations, better dialogue, better education, especially in the schools, because this is not going to go away. I mean, China's a great power. It's going to be throwing its weight around not less, but more as we get into the future, as it grows economically and militarily, politically. So we're going to have to be, guard, uh, be careful because Asian Canadians are 18% of our population. That's three times as much per capita as the United States where they have their own problems with anti-Asian violence. The number of Canadians of Asian origin is actually almost identical to the number of Americans of Latino origin. So this is hmm. a big chunk, almost 20% of our population and that's one in five almost so we we've got to have a better better way of dealing with this being able to function be able to criticize foreign actions without it rebounding against our fellow citizens
1: well said gordon holden with us director of the china institute and professor of political science with the university of alberta gordon as always thank you for the time be well thank you you're listening to the scott thompson show podcast on 900 chml uh, Looks like the blockage has been cleared that's it yeah! sailing! see you next time firm grip on the wheel please no slip-ups wow uh it's amazing uh it was amazing to see a cargo ship get stuck in the suez canal last week uh, and you saw the shots from space. Uh, it wasn't going anywhere. And my goodness, imagine all of those cargo, uh, containers in a row being pulled behind a truck. That's how many potential trucks were on top of that, uh, thing. And, you know, many of us thought, well, why don't they just unload it? Why don't they start doing that now? And obviously, they said last night, you know, you can't, th- this is a, um, this is a balancing act. These are put on in a certain way and have to be taken off in a certain way. And if you don't, you unbalance the ship and a whole other problem is, uh, comes out of that. So, uh, it looks like this thing is finally, uh, freed. Let's bring in Ian Hamilton, president and CEO of the Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority and is with us now. Ian, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yep, yeah, doing great. Thanks for having me. So, uh, has it been partially freed, or is it out at this point? Do we know? Uh,
5: my understanding is it's actually out. I know that they pulled yeah. the um, the stern off uh, about over 100 meters. Uh, I guess late last night or early this morning, and um, and that now I think it's I think it's actually out.
1: So, um, do what, from what we know, how did this happen?
5: Uh, what we're what we're obviously hearing is um, like like everybody. It's mainly due to um, due to wind, but uh, they still haven't completely commented on whether there was any uh, technical problems or some form of um, I guess uh, mistake or uh, some so, so some human error that was involved.
1: So basically, what happened here is this giant uh, ship got wedged on both sides of the canal and then grounded. Accurate.
5: Yeah. Yeah. And I think if you look at the everyone's seen pictures of the ship and you just see what it looks like to have 20,000 containers piled up, you, you realize that that side of the ship acts almost like a sail.
1: Wow. Uh, and, you know, many thought, well, gee whiz, why don't we, you know, it was obviously stuck there for several days. Why not just start unloading it? That obviously not an easy task either and presents some problems because of balance.
5: Yeah. And that was uh, I think that was plan B. And uh, I I understood that there was a crane. Um, or maybe multiple cranes in transit to to try to do that if, if necessary. But um, as you kind of mentioned in your introduction, the uh, the stow plans are pretty specific on these ships. And if you start, um, you have to unload them in a certain way to keep the uh, keep the balance of the ship. So it would have been a technically challenging uh, challenging task, that's for sure.
1: Are you surprised all the containers actually stayed on the ship considering this journey, even jerking it loose?
5: Yeah, I don't think there was much sway in the ship. Um, are listing in the ship so i think that they um they're, they're all they're all linked in together so they are quite stable and uh, some of the uh some of the waves and events they would experience on um on the ocean would be uh would be significantly greater than what they've experienced in the canal
1: so yeah uh, we have confirmed it is in fact uh freed and I, I think there was like 150 200 ships backed up on each side any idea how long that will take to clear up ian
5: yeah, I think they're estimating, I think in total, they estimated about 350 ships, um, and they're hoping to have them cleared up within about a week.
1: And what does that do to the supply chain around the world, or is it just to that geographic area? How, does, how big a, how big a, 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 transport, a tra- transportation corridor is that? How does it affect the rest of the world? Yeah, it's
5: huge. Um, 15% of all global trade travels through the, uh, through the Suez Canal. Um, certain commodities like, uh, like uh, oil. Probably affected a little bit more than other commodities, but there's a lot of finished goods in those, um, in those containers. And quite often they would, um, they would come into Europe to be transloaded into, um, into North America and particularly into Montreal and Halifax and then, um, and then brought into our goods, to goods here. So it does mean that we'll be eating into our, our inventories. Luckily it's probably total only a worst case two weeks delay um but it also creates a trickle down congestion at the other at the other facilities as now the vessels start arriving fast and furious once they get uh, once they get cleared
1: yeah that's a good point i mean the ships are are backed up now but behind that are trucks and warehouses and so on right along the chain
5: yeah and i think it again and we've we've seen it through um through the covid pandemic uh, just how important these um, the sustainability of these supply chains are, and how uh, how vulnerable we are as um, as a as a nation and as the entire uh, entire global planet and, um, in in mishaps like this, and uh, when supply chains break down, it um, there really is a problem.
1: Talk about how important uh, it is where you are and what you do through the Hamilton oshawa Port Authority. How big are these ports?
5: Um. So the Hamilton Oshawa Port Authority does, uh, does about 650 ships per year. Uh, the ships, generally the ships are probably about half the size of the, in length. Uh, the size of the ship, the, um, ever given in the Suez Canal. But, um, the, the commodities that come through Hamilton worth about, uh, and Oshawa worth about three billion dollars support 40,000 jobs in the province. So if ever there was a breakdown in, um, in the supply chain coming into Hamilton, there's 40,000 jobs that, um, that are fundamentally exposed.
1: I think, and, they, they, and you know, a lot of this stuff behind the scenes is not until something like this happens that we realize. And like you said, the pandemic, we understand how supply chains work.
5: Yeah, that's for sure. And I think something we all take for granted and, uh, we see, we see the ships going back and forth, but, um, the St. Lawrence Seaway Management Corporation does an absolutely fantastic job keeping the, uh, St. Lawrence system open. Um, and in, in comparison, that's a 3,700 kilometer system versus a, uh, a 200 kilometer system, which is the Suez Canal and, mm. To date, their record is that they're, um, they're open 99.8% of the time, which is a f- fantastic, uh, fantastic record.
1: So do you think, Ian, anything will be learned from this uh, giant, because this is obviously a massive ship, the size of a skys- skyscraper on its side, uh, will size be an issue moving forward? Or is there anything that you think will change because of what happened?
5: certainly specific to the incident there'll be um there'll be lots of uh lots of investigations to figure out uh, to figure out what happened and possibly some um some additional uh, measures put into place to try to recover from these uh from the situation but the trend has been over the last um last few decades is uh, is bigger ships um trying to reduce mm. the costs and so i think that um as as we continue to go, grow globally which is uh, which is overall a positive thing i think it's um it's important to understand that um, we we all we are vulnerable when things go when, when things go
1: wrong. Uh, just out of curiosity, Ian, how long would it take to load a ship like that or unload it? Any idea? Um, the whole ship, I don't.
5: They, they would generally be loading at multiple ports, but you can probably an effective um, with multiple cranes. A single crane, for example, in Hamilton, could probably load about um, maybe fifteen containers an hour. Wow, so, and like you said, yeah. it's not
1: like the thing ever sits actually empty. Some of it's unloaded, some of it's loaded back up, and such.
5: Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it is. Um, it it would be it would be a long a long process, but generally they're they're in and out of ports within within probably a twenty four to forty eight hour window, um, based on what they unload and load into those uh, into the vessels.
1: I I found it fascinating too with you know the GPS and such. We're monitoring all of these ships, and you do that right the way across this whole system, don't you? Yeah,
5: and particularly once they enter into the Great Lakes, there's um, there is a satellite monitoring system.
1: Yeah, very cool. All right, Ian Hamilton, president and CEO of the Hamilton-Oshawa Port Authority, uh, giving us uh, his ex- uh, expertise and trying to explain exactly what happened in the Suez Canal. Good news is that cargo ship that was stuck has been freed. Ian, thanks for the time and insight, much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. Thank you, and uh, glad you're interested.